All right, so open in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We are actually in chapter 3, and we are going to read verses 8 and 9. And uh, one of the very few times in my life that you'll, you'll see this, I'm preaching on one verse. <laughs> because the, the truth be told, I got to basically toward the end of my uh, normal sermon length, and I was still on point one. So I realized, you know what? I think I'm not going to try to squeeze in the second point. We'll do the second point, uh, not Easter, which is next Sunday, but the Sunday after. So it really is um, the first half of a sermon that you're going to hear today. So it'll be a two-parter, just like Pete's was this past couple weeks. Um, but you'll see why as we go along, it's just so important um, to really open up this verse uh, this morning together and feast on it, okay? So if you're able to stand healthy and, and honor our Lord Jesus and his word, hear the word of God to you this morning. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Finally, all of you, Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inerrant word. May he bless us to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. All right. Let's take a few moments as we uh, get into the Word of God this morning, as it's found in 1 Peter 3, to reorient ourselves, right? We've had a busy week, most of us. Um, um, we've been doing lots of all different, different things, but let's reorient ourselves to the Apostle Peter's roadmap for resident aliens uh, who, who are chosen by God and who are precious to God in Christ, who is the ultimate chosen one, the living stone, um, the one who left heaven and came uh, to be one of us and to pay for our sins and raise, rise from the dead. So uh, when I think of reorientation, uh, you know, sometimes I, I know that can seem wearying, like, oh, he's going to uh, you know, regurgitate or uh, go back over what we went, went over. Well, look, I got a great illustration I came up with when I was laying in bed. You know, whether it's in bed or if I'm in the shower and, or other strange, humble places. I know these ideas come up. But so I'm just a few weeks ago, a number of weeks ago, my wife and I were uh, walking through trails and we're in the woods. And we, we realized we don't have any perspective of where we are, where to go. And we saw a map. You know, they have those maps, wood maps. We're like, yes, we go up to the map, map, only one problem. Guess what little bit of information was missing? Yes, that little dot that says you are here. Without that you are here, you have no perspective, and the map is pretty much absolutely useless. So what we're going to do right now, just for a very few moments, is we're going to look at that red dot because, praise God, we have a red dot to show us, which I'm an, I am the red dot, to show us where we are in the roadmap so that we can then go forward uh, intelligently and we don't divorce what we so often do sometimes in a legalistic way, sometimes even unknowingly, we don't divorce the gospel exhortations, how we're to live for Christ, from the gospel itself that empowers us and, and that gives us the, um, the motivation, the inspiration, and the power to actually do these great gospel exhortations that we all know are wholesome and right and Christ-like to do, but we would have no power to do them if they aren't connected to our awesome Lord and Savior and his um, life-giving death, and his life-giving resurrection. Does that make sense? So this is what we're going to do. Um, we saw the last couple sermons, Pastor Pete did a great job, um, explained to us uh, Paul, Peter's exhortations uh, for, for instance, servants to submit to their masters, even the unreasonable and the harsh ones. Uh, part and parcel of the calling, if, if a servant comes to Christ, a slave in those days, um, the way that they showed their, their devotion, their love, their faith in, to Christ, 
himself, their Lord, their Savior, is that they would be submissive to their masters, even those who don't believe and who are unreasonable and harsh. Um, but notice this. This is uh, the reasoning that Peter gives. This is what he attaches to that uh, often very uh, daunting and difficult task. He says this. He backed up this exhortation with the model of Jesus himself. Um, in chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, that is Christ, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, what Peter's saying is, as followers of Christ, as those who are united to Christ by faith, um, then we are called to live the way that our Savior lived. He was called to that, and surprise, surprise, so are those connected to him. Um, that's what Peter's saying. And in particular, this is what uh, Pastor Pete, <laughs> it's confusing, Peter, Pastor Pete, Pastor Pete, but this is what Pastor Pete um, opened up for us the last couple of weeks. In particular, servants are to submit to masters, even unreasonable ones. Wives to husbands, even unbelieving ones. Citizens to governing officials, even unjust ones. That's the cross-shape calling that we all have. You remember Jesus put it this way, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. That was part and parcel of our call and, and these first early Christians, that was their call when they first received Jesus. Was not only the forgiveness of sins, but now a new life to live for him, which is to live like him. That's a whole new life. So like our Lord, we too, because this word is for us, we're called to follow Jesus' lead. Um, and notice that this, this verse has always struck a, a, a real deep chord with me since I've come to know Jesus. It's both convicting and empowering when I, when I see the example of Jesus. So often in my life, and I know it's true of you because you're human as well, I need to see it practiced. Like whether it's preaching or fishing or weightlifting or, or, or no matter what it is, I can learn as much theory as this, this little noggin can fit. But for me, it's like, but what does it look like? In I want to see it. Ah, that's what it looks like. Well, that's the issue here. We have that wonderful, um, these wonderful world, words. When they hurled their insults at him, what did Jesus do? He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. You know, never said a mumbling word. That's what Peter's referring to here. Instead, what did he do? So if he didn't do those negative things positively, we got to fill ourselves up. Uh, you know, whenever you ever try to do negative stuff, like take stuff away, but then you're like, but then what do I do with the positive? Well, Peter tells us what Jesus did. Instead, this is what he did with his energy. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's power. It's saying, I trust you enough, Father, that justice will win out in the end. And that even though this seems like a passive action, it's going to accomplish your kingdom purposes right here in my life in this difficult situation, which in, in these cases that we've seen can be very painful. Uh, living with an unbelieving spouse, living with an unjust government, which they were living under at the time, uh, living with employers who uh, are unreasonable. Now, in the case of Jesus, him doing these things, I do want to pause and say this, thank the Father in heaven he did. For he, Peter goes on in verse 24 of chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thank God. Uh, Jesus didn't say, all right, enough of this. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm no doormat. And, and what you're doing is, I mean, enough's enough. I mean, I can only take it so far, but this is, and, you know, we do, why am I saying this? Because this is normally how we react. And then we give the 50 million reasons why it's okay for us to retaliate. Thank God he didn't do that because that's what saved our souls. 
him literally taking it on the chin silently for you and for me. Now, when Peter says, holds up Jesus as our example, obviously we can't die for one another's sins. So he's not saying that. It's only the precious blood of Christ, Peter said this, a lamb without blemish or defect that can do that. And blessed be Jesus' name for all the eternity that he did do it. He healed our wounded souls and he brought us back to God. Listen, he didn't just give us fire insurance, although that's very important. <laughs> he did save us from hell, but he brought us back, back to the garden, as it were, so that we could be in fellowship with God the Father. So now we come to chapter 3, verse 8. All that is to say, uh, it's very important to see everything I just said, because that's what Peter just said, so we can see this verse, chapter 3, verse 8, is couched in all those wonderful truths of the gospel that Peter just outlined for us. And so now Peter goes from addressing particular um, uh, people who have particular lots in life, uh, servants, wives, husbands, um, citizens. Now, notice what he does in verse 8 of chapter 3. He's going to address us all, no matter what our station in life is. And he begins by saying this, Finally, all of you, or as the New American Standard Bible puts it, to sum it up, everything I've been saying, all of you. So no true sojourner or pilgrim who is on this journey from this present world to the world to come is excluded. That means literally every single last person in the church, uh, this verse is for them. From the littlest child who knows Jesus to the oldest elder in the church, and no matter what position in society or in the church. And he's about to lay some really strong words on us. Uh, some words of great depth and great significance for all Christians. Now listen, this is why it's, it's been so exciting for me this uh, number of weeks where I've really been able to dig into this. Words that if we take to heart, they have the power to bless our church body and anybody who's listening to this, and the community around us uh, with the very thing that we want as children of the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree at Calvary. And what is the one thing that every true believer wants? That I don't think there's any debate. We want to make a difference in the church and in the world where God placed us. I can't think of anybody who says, I really don't want to have any, any good impact on anybody in my life. I'd rather just sit and bide my time till Jesus comes. Every single one of us wants to be a blessing. I haven't met a Christian yet who said to me, I don't really want to be a blessing. The other thing here is not only to be a blessing, but we see in this text something really crazy. We will inherit a blessing if we put these words into practice. That's what he says. You are called to this so that you might not only be a blessing, but inherit a blessing. God's not stingy. It's not either or. We're blessed and we bless in the world when we take these words to heart as the church of Jesus Christ, as pilgrims and sojourners, resident aliens in this world. And we do it with gladness because we want to bring joy to the heart of the one, listen to this, who if I had 10,000 years on this earth to live, I still could never figure out why in the world Jesus would put up with me. And why in the world he would lay down his life and literally um, pay my punishment uh, for a wretch like me. I'll, I'll never get it. I'll never get it. Why me? Maybe I could get it in principle. Well, he does it for his church, but I still can't get it. Why did he do it for me? So this is what we're going to see this week. I mean, uh, for the next two weeks, and then we're only going to look at the first point. But I want you to see this. As resident aliens on earth, traveling to our true country, we're called to two things. Listen, it's, it's very simple, and I just want to take the time to uh, uh, you know, work it out this morning. We're called, first of all, to love each other in the church. Wow, profound. But that is the first thing Peter deals with. And the second thing we're called to is to return blessing for insult in the world that we might inherit a blessing. That's the two things. So the one is what we're called to in the church. What we're called to in the church is brotherly love. We're going to see that in a minute. What we're called to in the world 
And this was pretty profound to me as well. And it makes sense as I, my, my mind went through all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. What we're called to in the world as the church is to overcome evil with good. To bless and not curse. Not the most exciting thing you'd think. Not the second principle in, in God's eternal plan for his church. But as we're going to see, Peter will keep going on these themes throughout his epistle. But we're going to see it real clear here. So this week, we're only going to focus on love in the church. Next week, we're going to focus, or next time, we're going to focus on overcoming evil in the world with good. Okay? So let's take a look at the first one. Love each other in the church. Let's read verse 8 together again. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate, and humble. Now, I don't know about you, but usually I read that, or even if I preach on it, I'll give a couple of minutes to go over it, and then boom, I'm in the next passage, next part. Because it's kind of almost like, yeah, 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 I know, love, humble, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's why this week I thought, you know what? No, it's a little deeper and a little more profound and a little heavier than we often give it uh, credit for being. Now, think about it this way. Peter's first original hearers, they needed so badly to hear this. Why? Because they were fairly new believers. Um, this is the early church. They're living in a strange land now. They're scattered throughout Turkey and Asia Minor, um, where obeying the gospel didn't get you rewarded. It got you reprimanded at, at best. That's the world they lived in. A world They were a minority, which, please, don't even get me preaching now. We're always a minority. And, the only, and when we're not the minority is when we're in trouble. That's when we become a lazy, luxuriant, materialistic church. Throughout the history of Christianity, we've been the minority. Surprise, surprise. And God calls us to be salt and light when the rest of the world is literally crazy. Think of it this way, for the early church, and then we'll see for us as well. On top of all the ills and trials that's common to all mankind, right? We pray about them sometimes in church, very often in church. Sickness, non-believers, believers, we won't get sick. Death, we all have to deal with that horrible last enemy and the sorrow that it produces. A rebellious child, hey, none of us are immune, believer, unbeliever. Um, struggle to provide, to put food on the table, uh, natural disasters, political unrest, crime. We have to deal with that as common humanity. But on top of that, they were experiencing suffering for their obedience to the gospel. They needed to know, Pete, what's the plan? What are we, how are we really supposed to live for Jesus in this mess? Because we're a little discouraged. They were experiencing confusion. They were experiencing discouragement. And, and we'll see later in Peter, they were actually experiencing a level of surprise at how hard and complicated the pilgrim journey was, was becoming. Because later he says, don't be surprised at the trials. So obviously, they, for some reason, they were, they were caught off guard. And why I want to bring up their context is because that's the only way we can really understand how these words apply to us instead of going direct to us. But notice how the church today so badly needs to hear this as well. Excuse me. Why do we need to hear it today, for instance? Besides the, the common themes that I just mentioned in the early church, we are a deeply divided country and we are a deeply divided world. You know, we talk about the global village now. Well, this global village is by no means united. We are all shooting at each other, yelling at each other, screaming past each other. That's the world we live in. And then what really, uh, the saddest thing of all this is that it's not just that the world is divided, our country is divided, it's that the church of Jesus is divided. And I'm not talking about Lutheran, Presbyterian, hey, that's okay, we have these different denominations to still be united, you know. I have a lot of dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we are on the same page, and we're Anglican and Presbyterian and Independent and Baptist, whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how we are divided by, even within those, uh, our own small local churches, we are divided. And here's the problem here. The very place where we are supposed to find some respite from a tumultuous world of unbelief has become a war zone with no signs of letting up. That's what I've seen when I look at this text and I see how it could bless us if we really put it more into practice in accordance with the plan of Jesus 
the one who was crucified for us, I see that the church needs to turn back into from being a, a war zone itself to being a place of respite from the war. That's what I see. And I want to prove it to you from the text. And here's the thing. Now is not the time for band-aid solutions. It's not going to cut it anymore. We're past the temporary ceasefire. Or superficial remedies of just play nice. You know when you say that to your kid? You know, do you really think that ever works anyway? You know, like telling two kids they're totally at each other's throats. Play nice now. I look at them like, really? But nothing should, yeah, exactly. Like that counseling thing where uh, it was a Bob Newhart, where the woman comes in and she's pouring out her heart and here's his advice. Stop it. Just stop it. She looks at him all startled. But that's basically what he says for the whole skit, right? Uh, yeah, no, actually nothing short of a cross-shaped solution will suffice, my brothers and sisters in Jesus. The only way to true, deep, lasting peace and harmony in the church is found right here, that's why I'm so excited, in the apostolic instructions to the church down the ages, both ancient and modern, this is still the same answer. That's what happened to jumping out of my skin this week. It's a five-fold plan. We're talking about five points, but don't worry, we're going to go briskly through them all. Um, that I promise you. Um, when I think of a five-fold plan, all I can think of is the fingers making a fist and striking a blow for the kingdom of God. That's, where, that's how we can look at it. So it's a five-fold plan. We're going to look at each five things that, that Peter um, outlines for us. And he says, remember, this is the summary of the whole thing. To sum it all up, all of you, number one, first and foremost, live in harmony with one another. First principle. If you're taking notes, write it down. Live in harmony with one another. Now, in the original Greek, and I'm going to do that a little bit this week, more than usual, share the original Greek, because I want to know what in the world is the, the original word, and what, what is Peter actually asking us to do? Um, that's very important to me, and should be very important to you, so we don't get sidetracked. So when he says, live in harmony with one another, which is a decent translation, literally, he says, be one-minded with one another. So right away, we have to ask the question, be one-minded about what? Now, sometimes we talk about being one-minded in the philosophy of ministry. Um, certainly, we need to be one-minded in theology, that what we believe is what the Bible teaches, um, but I don't think that's at all what Peter's talking about here. I mean, certainly theologically, to a degree, I mean, is what he's talking about. But I think he means this. Everything he's been saying in his letters so far, particularly being one-minded about what we're called to. If you remember in chapter 1, what are we called to? Obedience to Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate calling as those who he spilled his blood for, um, we are sprinkled by his blood for obedience. In other words, we are all united in this, that we take our orders, our marching orders from King, risen King Jesus. And on this, we cannot disagree. On this, there should be no division. We need to be absolutely one-minded that what he says is what we need to, need to believe and do in his power and by his grace. We have to take it with utmost seriousness there's no room for division. Now, in the Atlantic Monthly, there was a story about the three uh, tenor singers, popular tenor singers. I believe two are Latino, and one of them is, is Italian. Uh, Jose Carreras, Placido Domingo, and Luciano Pavarotti. Uh, they were performing together, and a reporter tried to press the issue of competitiveness uh, between these singers. You know, they could be really bravado uh, in terms of... Uh, operatic singers, pun intended. Um, but Domingo made this interesting comment to the reporter, which I thought was pretty uh, neat. He says, you have to put all your concentration into opening your heart to the music. You can't be rivals, listen, when you're making music together. Isn't that cool? You can't be rivals when you're making music together. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we too have to open our hearts to the music of the gospel and of God's word, um, of God's uh, sovereign will for his pilgrim people. It's more of a dance. It's more of a symphony. 
It's more of being in concert. When you're in concert, every person has to be in place. Every person has to be ready to play their part perfectly so that the harmony comes out beautifully and it's not, you know, one person's not going off on a solo when they're not supposed to. Another person isn't sleeping. You when pastor's preaching. You know, we all have to be together. John White puts it this way. I've been reading his book, uh, read uh, The Fight, which is a really good uh, devote book for devotions, by the way. I recommend it. John White, The Fight. And excuse me one more time. Um, he puts it this way. He says, when Christ demands that you commit yourself to an enduring responsibility toward people you may not naturally care for, can I get a witness? He's really doing you a favor. He is insisting that you facilitate the very thing you need, a caring community whose members never fail one another. I thought that was deeply convicting. Because so often we don't want to participate. Ah, you know, I, I don't want to be bothered. You know, what do I need them for? And what, what John White is pointing out, reflecting uh, Peter's words here, is that he is telling us to participate in this community for our own good. Because we need a body like that. A church like that. It's not just so that, oh, well, I better go to church so I can be helpful. No, we need it. We're only helping ourselves as well. Second thing, not only be of one mind. Second thing Peter says is be sympathetic. This was a fun one for me. Or maybe not so fun. Because I like to look up for quotes and illustrations and... and um, there was one issue with this, though. I found when I looked up empathy, um, somebody said, empathy is your pain in my heart. I thought, oh, that's, that's a good you know, definition. And then I looked up sympathy, and guess what happened? It was the same definition. Your pain. And I'm like, now wait a minute. These are two different words. How are we getting the same? So, so then I looked it up. You know, I did some more research, which, you know, shoot me now. I don't know why I went and did this. It took so long. But I finally found in English why, um, uh, uh, how people make a distinction between the two words. And this is what I read. Sympathy is feeling compassion, sorrow, or pity for the hardships that another person encounters. So it's kind of like you're just feeling pity for their suffering. Okay? Kind of an outside thing. Whereas they would say empathy is putting yourself in the shoes of another, uh, which is why actors often talk about it. It's more like getting in that person's skin and feeling what they're feeling. And so they make that distinction. But here's the problem. Uh, and this is where, thank God for the Greek language. Sometimes it's so much richer. The word that, that Peter uses here is sympotheus in the Greek. And it actually conveys both ideas of sympathy and empathy. So it's both and. It's not an either or. Um, it literally means in the Greek. See, this is why I kind of went to the Greek this week. Have a fellow feeling, so that's kind of the sympathy, but suffering or feeling the like with another. Now we're getting a little more to our empathy, right? And then, I, this is my favorite one, mutually commiserative. <laughs> In other words, you're commiserating with each other. And to commiserate means to, to, to along with, feel the pain of another. And that's why your pain in my heart does convey. You know, someone once said this, speaking of quotes, instead of putting others in their place, try putting yourself in their place. I thought that was powerful. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine a local body of believers that instead of being concerned of making sure everybody is put in their place, that it's just the opposite, we make sure that we put ourselves in their place, feel their pain, have compassion, have understanding. You know, it's like it says about Jesus in Hebrews. He is not unable to what? Sympathize. Why? Because he was tempted the same way we are. Yes, was without sin. In some ways we can say, well, how do you know? Believe me, can you imagine not sinning all the time? How painful that is? In other words, being tempted like that and, and each time through that. But he's able to sympathize. And again, he calls us to sympathize with one another in the church. And here's the thing, and why, I, why I, I figured I'm only going to preach on these verses, and, and this verse, and take uh, apart some of these things, 
Because listen, you want to know what the importance of sympathy is um, in the biblical uh, uh, definition of the world of the word. Simply this: the world. I don't need to tell you if you lived in it for any amount of time. The world can be a very cold, very cruel, and a very difficult place to live in. It can be dog eat dog, and I'll tell you what: it certainly can pummel sensitive souls. The body of Christ needs to be a place, this is what Peter's saying, where all of God's children, all of them, the ones you get along with naturally, the ones who get under your skin, all of them, where all of God's children can find some real, genuine sympathy. Real, from the heart. John Stott, he just, what a great commentator. Uh, very convicting, but again, with that British, dry, just straightforward way of saying things. Uh, he's, he's with Je I was going to say God bless him, but he's with Jesus right now, so he's more blessed than we are. But he said this, if we put ourselves sensitively into the place of the other person and wish for him what we would wish for ourselves, listen, we would never be mean, always generous, never harsh, always understanding. Never cruel, always kind. Isn't that awesome? All right, third thing. I'm going to move on. This is the biggie because I think it's the center of the whole verse. Um, and all these things we're talking about actually are an overflow of this. Peter says, love as brothers. Phileo. Love as brothers. Around, that was about between AD 120 and 200. So that was pretty way back in the early church days. There was a Greek writer called Lucian, and he had observed Christian, uh, the Christian community. And he's a non-believer, he was a non-believer, but he wrote this about the Christians that he observed. Listen to this. It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Let me just stop there for a minute. Man, ain't that good. Is that what our community says about us? Is that what the community says about the church in America? They spare nothing. Their first legislator put it into their heads that they are brethren. <laughs> I love that. That's such an incredible line coming from a non-believer to boot. He's saying their first legislator, meaning Jesus, put it into our heads that we're actual brothers and sisters. And why I find that so profound is because that's exactly what our Lord Jesus did. You know, we talk about um, the Holy Week. We talk about, um, you know, um, Palm Sunday and then um, leading up to uh, Passover, Good Friday, and, and then um, Resurrection Day, that Sunday. If you look at John's Gospel, it made me think of that this morning, uh, from, from chapter 13 of John's Gospel to like chapter 17, right, is when Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. Remember that. And what is at the heart of his commands through all of that instruction really could be summarized in his own words where he says, you know, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. And one of the ways that he uh, really secured that, uh, that type of love in our hearts as believers and followers of Christ is that he did put it into our heads, but beyond that, he put it into our hearts that if anyone who knows Jesus is your brother, is your sister. We, it's not, we should think of one another as family. We're like a family. We are family. You know, think about your physical family. Sometimes there's some, some uh, uh, relatives that literally can drive you bad. And there are times to my sin and embarrassment, I have been a little bit embarrassed about one of my family members, maybe the way they were acting or if they're living a certain lifestyle and I was in public. And I'm like, oh no, they're going to know that I'm related to this person. But in the church of Jesus Christ, that must never be. And I was deeply convicted by that. My heart was broken, that, that kind of ugliness, but that's a depraved heart. And that's why Jesus died for me. So there is hope. But that is how we are to see one another as pilgrims who are 
you know, on this pilgrim journey, which is not easy at all, it, it, without the help of God, impossible, how much more do we need the support of our brothers and sisters in Christ? That, uh, that agape phileo love. Now, um, there's a, an illustration I heard this week um, that really hit the nail on the head. So let me read it for you. There's um, Wes Seliger writes these words, which I thought were profound. He says, I have spent long hours in the intensive care waiting room, watching with anguished people, listening to urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child walk again? How do you live without your companion of some 30 years? And then he says, the intensive care waiting room is different from any other place in the world. And the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is rude. The distinction of race and class melt away. In the ICU waiting room, the world changes. Vanity and pretense vanish. The universe is focused on the doctor's next report. If only it will show improvement. And then his last line is a mic drop. Everyone knows that loving someone else is what life is all about. What Peter is saying is the church needs to be more like the ICU waiting room. It needs to be different than any other place on earth in this regard, that everyone knows that loving someone else is what life's about. It's not an addendum. See, we get busy doing the ministry of the church, and it's totally understood why we get caught up in it. But, and we think, oh, we gotta love these people. Well, this is, you know, that's kind of like secondary. It's kind of like, okay, Jesus, I'll stop what I'm doing for a minute and love this person, but then I really gotta get back to what it's really about. And what Peter's saying is, no, 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 no. You get that way backwards. That's what it's really about. You know, what, what is the point of ministry? What are you doing all this ministry for if there's no quality of life, which is love? All the law and the prophets can be summed up. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what Peter's saying is in the church, that's even deeper because they're not just your neighbor. They're your brother, your sister. Fourth thing. He says, be compassionate. Another one with the Greek. I want to find out what, what in the world that word really was. Because sometimes English just doesn't uh, translate perfectly. And that's true with any language, by the way. If you ever do any uh, study of other languages, you find, I don't have a word for this. There's no English word for this Italian word or vice versa. Well, compassionate, uh, often we think of it tugs on our hearts, right? That's kind of how we would use the, those terms. But actually, this is what compassion means. Yeah, hold on, I get made fun of. At Presbyterian, someone's making fun of me because I said this, but... To be compassionate, according to the Greek word here, is to be moved as to one's bowels. That's what it means. It means that it should be, listen, gut-wrenching. Your innards. You should feel that deep pain, that deep longing. You know, sometimes you have that, we talk about it, that uh, you know, thing in your stomach, or the knot in your stomach. That's what we need to be showing and having for one another. John Blanchard, Blanchard once put it this way, and, and this really struck me. The Christian should show the same concern for compassion as for creeds. Think about that. The Christian should show the same concern for compassion as for creeds. And we all know how deeply, vitally important it is to have uh, that concern for creeds that we believe the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us everywhere to uh, stand for sound doctrine and to fight for it. But what John points out here, which I think is so powerful, and why I parked on this verse this, uh, this morning, is that we need to have that same fervor that we have for truth, for compassion. Because remember, Jesus is filled with what? Truth and love. And I think the point is that what Peter is saying is we need to take some of that energy and also make sure that we're, we're experiencing that compassion as we share the love of Jesus with one another. I mean, the truth of Jesus with one another. We need to show that compassion of Jesus. We need to demonstrate it, remember, in practice, to see what it looks like for real. 
there was a horse that was shot with a, a crossbow twice, and it survived after four fellow mares spent three hours taking turns licking the wound clean. Now I'm going to read the story. The 20-year-old horse Zeta was in critical condition after one of the arrows bounced off her rib, while another lodged an inch from her lung as she grazed in a field in the UK. Now Zeta's owner, Joe Young, said the four other horses saved Zeta's life. And I want to read. It was really touching that when she was found, the other horses in the field were nuzzling her for comfort and licking the wound. Young said, they kept the wound clean, which would have prevented it from being infected by, by, by bacteria. And it also helped to stem the blood flow. There was definitely, he writes, a herd instinct kicking in, kicking in among the horses. They knew Zeta was in need, and they rallied around to save her. Now, Pastor Santa, I mean, it's a story of horses. Yeah, that's the point. Rebuked by horses. Is that how the church always works? That we go to our wounded and we, we encircle them with compassion, with care. Our guts have knots in them and, and long to see them made whole and their suffering to be mitigated. Enough said. The fifth one. And last one, Peter says, be humble. That's the last of the Christian graces in imitation of Jesus and with his help that Peter calls us to manifest in the church. That's humility. Now the idea here is not of thinking, not thinking too highly of oneself or thinking you're too good for the local fellowship of believers. Um, and when I thought of that, I thought of, uh, you know, I'm a big illustrations this week, but I thought of C.S. Lewis, and he once told the story of how when he was first saved, he kind of thought, you know, he was a professor at a college, very highly esteemed. He thought kind of like, oh, these little local churches, they're kind of beneath me. You know, it's these, you know, um, he didn't use the word peasant people, but you'll see in his quote, he kind of meant like, oh, I really have to go to these places. So at first he thought he could do it on his own. He would stay at home and do his own studying and his own prayer, praying. And then God started convicting him. And I'm going to read what he wrote here. This is powerful. He said, I disliked very much their hymns, which I consider to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. Yeah. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually, my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, yeah, throw that in there, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew, and then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Isn't that powerful? I, it's one of the things I always love about C.S. Lewis is that open, frank honesty, brutal honesty about himself. Here's the thing. Peter reminded us earlier that our Lord Jesus humble, humbly embraced the cross in obedience to his Father, entrusting um, himself to God for the outcome to his Father. He gave his life, is what Peter says, so that we, lost sinners, once part and parcel of that world that's now persecuting us, so that we could be brought back into fellowship with God and enfolded into his chosen holy people, his new nation. What Peter is saying here is that he wants us uh, lovingly and, uh, and unabashedly to know that just as Jesus uh, himself was called to lay down his rights and entrust himself to him who judges justly, so are we his people. Now listen, that is the plan of God for his people. Period. That's what we're called to in the church. There's no plan B. There's no, well, I don't like that plan. Let me, let me get another one. You know, in America, we want options. When, when my cousins were here and we went to the grocery store, my cousin almost fainted seeing how many salad dressings there were. 
she was like, Santa, mamma me. And I'm like, what? And then she said, she said, oh, these salads are like, what in the world? You know, but here, brothers and sisters, there is no option. This is the plan that God's given us, the loving plan. And here's the thing, that ultimately, in the long run, works. If you want to be useful in the kingdom of God. Inside the church, in terms of our relationships with one another, we've been called, each and every one of us, I'll read the verse again, to live in harmony with one another, to be sympathetic, to love his brothers, to be compassionate and humble. Now, Peter already told us in chapter 1, uh, the, conse the consequence of, of us obeying the truth is that we now have sincere love for our, our brothers. And on the basis of that, we are to love one another deeply from the heart. And here he spells it out more concretely, concretely in this verse. And then he's not done. He's going to talk more about it in his epistle. He's going to mention it again about how the need to love in the church. As we really begin to start wrapping it up for today, I thought I'd mention this, and maybe this will help clarify some things. Today, we have a number of church models to choose from. And I've learned a lot from many of them. This is what I mean. We got the purpose-driven church. Have you ever heard of that? We got the prevailing church. It's another book and another system of how to do church. Uh, the intentional church is what it ended up morphing into. He ended up falling in a different name. We got simple church. You starting to get the idea? These are all different models for the church. What we see here, though, in the Bible, God's plan for his church. If we wanted to write a book about it, but we don't have to because 1 Peter's already written, it would be the cross-shaped church. Because on the one hand, we are sacrificially to love each other in the church as Jesus loved us. And on the other hand, we're going to see this next time we get into this passage, we're called to overcome evil with good, which is also cross-shaped. It goes totally against the grain of human nature. But we'll talk about that next time. Now, this is not one of many church models we have the option to choose from. It's the God-breathed strategy for all of his chosen people, precious to him, living as foreigners in a foreign land. Here's the thing. There's a huge elephant in the room. And we've been living with the past number of years, um, not just in our own country, but worldwide. That's how I, I opened up this message talking about this. And that's this. The biblical Christian principles of love. Who doesn't like love? I see shirts. Live in love. And I want to ask the person, what do you mean? Because I have a deep feeling they don't mean what the Bible means. Uh, words like love, uh, words and principles like freedom, right? And that word's a lot today. Equality, hey, that's a great biblical words. Marriage, even. Truth, justice. There are all these wonderful words, but the world has now redefined these words. Repackaged them, thrown them back at us, and said, if you don't do these words the way that we're defining them, then you're an enemy of the good. You're an enemy of the people. You're the problem in society. Sounds familiar because that's what they did when Rome fell. They tried to blame Christians. It's because you left the old gods and went to your new god. And then St. Augustine's City of God wrote a really thick book to show. I beg to differ. Because he lived as a minority as well. In a largely uh, pagan world. So here's the thing. What chance do we have, especially in the toxic culture that we live in today, of stemming the tide of a sinful world that uses liberty as license to live in a way that is diametrically opposed to the gracious rule and reign of Christ and his kingdom? Now, I found these words by Joseph Stowell really uh, summarize what Peter's saying to us here in this, this section of his epistle. I put it up on my Facebook, but I want to read it to you today. No matter how dark and brutish American society may become, it can never extinguish the light of Christ-like hearts and homes and churches. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to. To live in light of 1 Peter 3 and 8, 3 to 8, 
in the church, in our homes, and then, as we'll see next time, in the world. That the world can never take from us. And that, it's not a matter of maybe it'll be effective. Like in church planning, you try different methods. Say, well, if this doesn't work, we'll try that. No, this, does, this will work. Well, the timing may not be exactly the way you or I want it, but this is God's plan for his pilgrim people. And as we, we looked at it, don't you want to be a part, as the song says, of God's kingdom? Come on, everybody. It's what Jesus gave his life for, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, for his glory and the good of a world that has completely lost its way and is plunging headlong on a path to destruction. And listen, this is what I want to literally, now this is the closing word. It's precisely what our Lord and Master Jesus is concerned with. What is Jesus concerned with, according to 1 Peter? He's concerned with saving more sinners out of a dark, doomed society through his church's cross-shaped witness of not repaying evil for evil but with good. Not repaying cursing for cursing, but repaying, use, uh, returning cursing uh, with blessing. That's the method. And that's the method he will send all of his power for us, to us when we pray to be able to do that more faithfully. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for how much is packed in that verse as it's preached in its context of 1 Peter. We acknowledge how woefully short we all fall to live this cross-shaped way in the church. But we know there is deep, great hope that no matter how many times we fall, we can get back up because Jesus has died and he has risen again. And because, Jesus, you are no longer dead, but you are right now alive at the right hand of the Father and can hear our cry. And do, you do hear our cries. So, Lord, we pray in accordance with your revealed will that more and more we can live according to 1 Peter 3, 8, in harmony with one another, sympathizing with one another, compassionately, loving as brothers, Lord, in deep humility. We want to do this because we want to follow your plan for saving men, women, and children out of a dying world. Lord, for our own good, for your glory, and for those who we have yet to win, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.